Well, praise the Lord for the good news, the hope that we have, that we've just sung about. Uh, Praise the Lord for how He has redeemed us and uh, how we are able to gather together um, because of His great love for us shown to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to continue our uh, study through the book of Mark, uh, our sermon series through the book of Mark, and uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12 today, looking at the next set of interactions that Jesus has with uh, some folks there as he is uh, winding down his earthly ministry and preparing to uh, go to the cross. And uh, so we'll be in Mark 12. As you're finding your place there, I want to ask you if you remember this. Uh, When you were a child, when I was little, I remember a a song that we uh, sang. It was a song entitled, I Don't Want to Be a Sheep. Have you you ever heard this song? Uh, I'm not going to sing it for you because I don't 100% remember how the tune goes. Uh, But uh, the the words are, I don't want to be a sheep, ba, 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 ba. You know, and then it goes on. Then it says, one of the lines, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Anyway, uh, it's this children's song. You've probably heard it. Uh, and then in the fourth verse of this song, uh, it, it deals with the people that we're going to be talking about today. And it says, I don't want to be a Sadducee. And the reason why is because they're so sad, you see. And so uh, we're going to talk today about the Sadducees and uh, look at how they interacted with Jesus and hear uh, really about why we think their, their lives were so, so sad because of some of the things that they, uh, that they believed. And so we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. And uh, looking at verses 18 through 27 this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. We begin reading, Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Let's go before the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this interaction that we read as Jesus is talking with the Sadducees. And thank you, Lord, for the way that he responded to them. I pray, Lord, that you would give us insight and wisdom and right application to your word this morning as we study it together. May you be glorified in this place. May you speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminating your word for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this is such an interesting moment. We have this, this group of religious leaders, the Sadducees. We'll talk more about them in just a moment. But they, they come to him with this question. And the question is based on uh, a passage in Deuteronomy where the people are instructed, if a man dies and leaves a widow and no children, his brother is to, to marry her uh, and to provide children because it was to be the inheritance of the original, the first 
uh, man, it would be his inheritance would be passed on to any children born to uh, that woman. And so there was, a, there was this uh, intentionality in the law uh, regarding this issue. And so the Sadducees come with this question, and they create a scenario where there are seven brothers, all of whom die, uh, not providing any children to the widow, and then she dies, and they want to know who is uh, going to be married to her when they all get to heaven. And you can almost, I told the early service, it, it, it kind of like, you can just feel the gleam in the Sadducees' eyes as they are saying this, right? It's almost like they're on, a, you know, an episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And they're like, so whose wife is she going to be? And then you want to call a friend? Like, what's the, you know, how are you going to figure this out, Jesus? They're kind of, they're trying to catch him in this trap. We'll talk more about that in, in just a moment. But the Sadducees have come with this question. So before we really dive into what it is they're saying and then how Jesus responds, to them, we really need to have a little bit of understanding about who these guys were and what it was that, that was in their background, what it was uh, they were basing these questions on, why they were coming after Jesus with these questions. And so today we're going to be talking about debating uh, resurrection as we look into this particular passage of Scripture. In the first century Israel, the Sadducees were a religious faction that wielded really great societal power in nearly every aspect of society except for the military. For that, they had the backing of the Roman uh, Empire and that the Romans were, were taking care of all of the military stuff. But in every other area of Jewish society, the Sadducees were pretty much the, the, the power uh, of that society. They were Jewish aristocrats in their time. Uh, they were known as much for their wealth and corruption as for any of their religious beliefs. And in Jesus' time in particular, the Sadducees were in control of the, the, the two most important institutions of Jewish society, that being the temple, Herod's temple, uh, the, the, the Sadducees were in control of it as the religious leaders there, and they were in control of the Sanhedrin. So when you hear about Jesus being brought before the Sanhedrin on trial, these are the man, these are the men who were going to try him according to Jewish law. Jesus was a threat to them. Because as we know, the end of the story, he is going to rise from the dead, demonstrating once and for all his power over death and proving that their beliefs were wrong as they did not believe in the resurrection. The Sanhedrin was the governing body for both the religious and legal issues of the Jews. The, leaders, uh, the leader of the Sanhedrin was the uh, high priest who was given almost a king-like authority and was almost always one of the Sadducees. For instance, in Scripture, Annas and his son Caiaphas are the two high priests named in the New Testament. Both of them were Sadducees and both played critical roles in the execution of Christ. So here's what we know. That, that's kind of who they are. Here's what we know about what they, they believed. They, they had a special emphasis and, and belief that the first five books of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those five books they, they were, were their religious texts. That, that was their Bible, as it were. And so, as such, the Old Testament and what they believed, those five books, was the only authority on matters of faith and life. So Sadducees were, were flatly opposed to the Pharisee belief that oral tradition, uh, traditions passed down orally from one generation to the next. The Sadducees were opposed to that. The Pharisees believed that oral tradition equaled scriptural tradition. The Sadducees said, no, only the Bible is authoritative in terms of religious belief. But then they also believed in unrestrained free will, meaning 
that God had no role in the personal lives of anyone, that God was not involved. Every person, they believed, was a master of his or her own destiny. So the decisions you make, the things that you do, are entirely yours, and you determine the outcome of your life based upon the things that you do and the decisions that you make. God is not involved. And they also rejected entirely anything supernatural. So that, that means that they, they did not believe in angels, demons, heaven or hell, and not resurrection. They were strict annihilationists, meaning they believed that when your physical body died, your soul died with it. When, so when you come to the end of this life, it is over. That's, that was their, their belief system, which seems odd anyway, uh, given the fact that they were the religious leaders of the Jewish society. But nevertheless, that, that's where they were. They were annihilationists. Uh, souls die with the bodies. And then in spite of that, though, they believe strongly in ritual purity as prescribed by Moses. So they, they kept the sacrificial system. They obeyed the law according to what Moses had given them. And they did it for this reason. They did not want to disqualify themselves from leading the temple services that generated income. So ritual piety, ritual obedience to the law was not so much a relationship with God or anything looking toward the supernatural or the afterlife. It was much more about maintaining position and power right then. They were in charge of everything and they wanted to retain that so they had to look good for everyone else so that they could keep their positions of power and their wealth. It kind of gives you an insight then, uh, realizing that, that wealth was one of their kind of number one uh, sort of beliefs uh, of the Sadducees. Modern archaeologists have uncovered a few of their homes, describing them as the most opulent discovered to date in Jerusalem. Knowing that about the Sadducees, knowing that they were in charge of the temple, it kind of shed some light on Jesus going into the temple, turning over tables, driving out the money changers, and telling them that they had turned God's house into a den of robbers. Kind of gives you insight into why they might have been so angry at, 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 at Christ doing uh, that very thing. And so because he is a threat to them, because what he is teaching goes against what they believe and is a threat to their power, and because so many people are, are following him and listening to what he has to say, the, the Sadducees come to him in the passage we've just read that we're studying today, and they come with this question that is intending to be a trap. They are setting the trap, hoping to be able to disqualify Jesus from continuing to teach, hoping to prove to others he doesn't know what he was talking about. Now, it was the Sadducees who at the beginning of chapter 12 that we're in now, at the very beginning, uh, in verse 1, beginning of verse 1, wanted to arrest Jesus, but they were scared of the people who followed him, and so they have been looking for ways to undermine his authority and undermine his teaching and they believe that they have created the perfect trap to prove him wrong. So this is their trap. They begin with false piety. They begin with false piety. They start out, they, say, they come to him and they say, Teacher. Now, this is a, a term of respect. When someone calls someone teacher, it's rabbi, when they call him teacher, it's intended to be a sign of respect. And yet you know this group of people has no respect for Jesus. And so you can almost hear their lips dripping with sarcasm as they begin. 
even just not, not even asking the question they're going to ask, just by calling him teacher, you, you begin to understand that they are, they are coming pretending to be something that they are not. There is a false piety. And then, as if to elevate it, their question says, you know that Moses said, if a man dies leaving a widow. They, 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 they frame their question to prove their reliance upon Scripture, they frame their question to make it look like they have spent time studying the Scriptures and they know what they're talking about. And so there is this false sense of piety indicating that they study the Bible, they want to obey the law, and even respect Him as teacher. When I was in college, there was a a girl that was in my uh, architectural cohort. Um, She was Muslim, had grown up Muslim, came from a, a Muslim family, and and uh, I remember those one semester, we, we spent, uh, when we were in studio, we would have three-hour-long studio classes that, that were three days a week. So for nine hours a week, we were in class uh, together working on projects and stuff. And, and it, it was not lecture time. It was actually sitting at our, our tables working on our projects. So we had great opportunities to, to talk. And, um, and so one semester, she came armed with 10,000 contradictions she believed she had found in the Bible. And so she wanted to debate that with me and another guy who was a follower of Christ that were there uh, in our architecture studio. And, and I remember the uh, knowing from almost the beginning there was not going to be any real debate because she was not open to hearing anything that we had to say. It was a lot of arrogance and superiority that she was coming to the conversation with. And I feel a lot of the same way about how the Sadducees are coming to Jesus in this moment. They're coming with this this pretend righteousness, this false sense of piety, looking like they're one thing when in fact they are coming for different reasons. And then in their false piety, number two, they created a ridiculous situation. I don't know if you've spent a lot of time thinking about this, but if you just look at the sheer numbers, the the percentage chance of this situation logically actually happening are about the same chance you have of winning the lottery that you don't play. What chance is there that there are going to be seven brothers who all uh, die in order after having married the same woman and none of them produce children? Like the, the odds are completely against this ever happening. What's really interesting, when Matthew shares this same story uh, and records it, it, he records that the, Sanhedrin, the, the Sadducees came to Jesus asking the question as if it had already happened. We know a guy who had seven or had six brothers and he was married, he died, and all six of his other brothers also married this lady and they all died. They told it as a story in in Matthew's accounting of it where they knew this person as if this had actually happened. This is a ridiculous scenario that they have concocted in order to try to catch Jesus in a a, a trap. It's a silly straw man example used to try to trap Jesus and show that both what he was teaching was wrong and that the law was wrong because ultimately they were willing to, to get rid of the Mosaic law if it proved Jesus wrong as well. They they thought they had created the perfect situation to prove that the resurrection could not be real because who would she be married to once they all got to heaven? What they could not uh, understand or had erroneously assumed because they didn't believe in anything supernatural anyway was that if people were resurrected, that they, they'd assume they would uh, uh, assume the physical bodies capable of procreation and other things that we think of as the human experience. They could not understand that God could both raise the dead and create us as new creations uh, in an entirely different way than it's manifest here on earth. 
If you boil it down to the simplest thing, what was happening was, in their understanding, they were bringing God down to their level instead of elevating their thinking to where God is. I think that's a danger for us. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But but that's something that too many times we do. We we, we try to like define God based on how we understand Him, as opposed to understanding that He is far above anything we could ever ever imagine. So. In their trap, they began with false piety. They created this ridiculous situation. And then, in setting the trap, they ended up contradicting their own beliefs. They contradicted their own beliefs. They don't believe in the resurrection, but they still ask the question, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? If Jesus were sarcastic like me, uh, I could imagine him saying, do you mean the resurrection you don't think is going to happen? Why would it matter, right? But thankfully, Jesus is not as sarcastic as I am. And uh, so he didn't ask it that way. But trying to, to trap Jesus, they were willing to contradict their own beliefs in order to try to prove him wrong and, and, and bring him down in the estimation of the crowd that was following. Instead, they are the ones made to look ridiculous, which probably fueled their anger toward him, leading to his ultimate arrest and crucifixion. So we, we have the Sadducees setting the trap for Jesus. But then, the, the, the second part of this passage, we have Jesus responding to them. His response to their, their trap. His response to their question. Now, their, their question was dishonest to begin with because they denied the reality of a future resurrection. So their question was purely for the purpose of trapping Jesus. But His response not only answered their question but also confronted their error concerning two primary doctrines. He, he confronted their arrow, error sorry, on the doctrine of the future resurrection, there will be one, and he confronted their error on the existence of angels and the supernatural, there are. He corrected them by pointing out the two reasons that they had arrived at doctrinal error. He said there are two reasons why they had come to the wrong conclusions about what it was that they believed. And the first reason is this. In his response, he said, you don't know the Scriptures. The reason they were in error is they did not know the very Bible they claimed to believe. He says that there is a resurrection according to the Scripture. You can find it in the pages of Scripture. You can read it and know there is an intentionality with which God has revealed Himself throughout Scripture. And always there is the talk of the afterlife. There is an expectation of something beyond. There is the supernatural And so there is this understanding that there is more than just this life. He said, you have arrived at a wrong conclusion about all of these things because you don't know the Scriptures. He said, if you knew them, you would know there is a resurrection. Not only that, he said, because you don't know the Scriptures, you've arrived erroneously at this idea about what the resurrection is going to be like. And so you need to understand there will be no marriage in heaven. Now, the first time that I preached through this similar passage that's recorded in Matthew, I, <laughs> I told the joke uh, during the sermon that my wife Courtney hates this passage because she loves being married to me so much and she can't imagine heaven without being married to me. And she came to me later and asked me not to tell people that she hates the Bible. And I was, which I appreciated that, I, I didn't really mean to use the word hate, Uh, But I was even more excited about the fact that she corrected me on the not hating the Bible and didn't correct me on loving being married to me so much. So I was grateful about that. Um, But he says, if you knew and understood Scripture, 
then, then you would understand there is no, there is no marriage in heaven. It, it, heaven the, uh, the resurrection is not going to look like this life looks. And then the third thing he says about not knowing the Scriptures, he said, he said in the way that the, uh, thinking about not being married, we're going to be like the angels in, in that way. You, we will be like angels in this one way. Now, we do need to take a moment. He said if they understood the Scriptures, they would understand kind of these things. We need to take a moment, though, and recognize that Jesus is not saying that we become angels when we die. Not if you understand. Jesus is not saying we become angels when we die. That is not what Scripture says. In fact, when we read the rest of Scripture, we see the Bible has some very specific things to say about us as human beings related to angels. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So he is saying that, that while we are here, in terms of humanity, in the created order, in our earthly bodies, we are a little lower than the angels. And in particular, this particular uh, passage in Hebrews is referencing prophecy about Christ. And so he was saying in coming in human form, he was coming uh, a little lower than the angels. He was, being, he was subjecting himself to humanity for a little while. So we understand that there is a difference between humans and angels. And then we get into... Uh, First Peter chapter 1, and we read more. He says that we, uh, so Peter writing to the early church says, he is saying that while we are, are he, I'm sorry, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. He's talking about the prophets who were writing about the coming of Christ and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now think about that. He said for a little while, Humanity is lower than the angels. But Peter tells us that we also need to recognize that there are things about the human experience that angels wish they understood. Primarily, when you look at the whole context of what he's writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, he's saying that the thing that they wish they could understand is redemption. He's saying that, that what we experience is the mercy of God. The angels don't get to experience that. If you remember the angels who fell with Satan when, he, when they rejected God, their, their, their punishment is eternal. They have been cast out. But we, when we rejected God, God sent His Son to die in our place. Angels wish they could experience the, the, the knowledge of God that involves His mercy that you and I get to, uh, get to understand. And so we need to understand that when redeemed and glorified, angels wish they could know God and experience His mercy and redemption the way that we will have. So to say that we go to heaven to become angels would be a demotion from what we actually get to experience as the redeemed child of God that I am taken to go and live with Him for all of eternity. So, please hear that. So Jesus' answered to them, number one, you don't know the Scriptures. He said, number two, you don't know the power of God. Not only do you not know the Scriptures and what it says about God, you don't know His power. You don't know what He is able to do. You don't know Him as God. He referred to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as living, though they had already died. Jesus used the example of the, the burning bush and God talking to Moses and telling him uh, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did not say he was the God. He said, I am. 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And saying that, he's referring to them in the present tense. Then this is, found, this, is, this is what's brilliant about Jesus' response. That story found in Exodus. You know where Exodus is? In the first five books of the Bible. You know what the Sadducees claim they believe? The first five books of the Bible. But if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are currently living when God says that to Moses, but yet they had been dead for hundreds of years physically, how is it that there is no resurrection if they are still in the present? It's an interesting, brilliant argument that Jesus makes as he sets it up for them. Their denial of all things supernatural is really the basis of their, their problem here. He tells them that not only do they not know the Scriptures, even the ones they claim to believe show that God is supernaturally powerful and can do all things. And while talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense, he's also referring to the burning bush. Do you remember the story of the burning bush? This supernatural event where a bush is on fire and the voice of God speaks from it and yet it's never consumed? Like, if that story is true, which they claim that that part of the Bible is true and authoritative, then how can you say there is nothing supernatural? A bush doesn't catch fire and not burn. And yet God is supernaturally able to do that. They are not only ignorant of Scripture, he tells them, they are ignorant of the power and glory of God. They are walking around acting as if they are the final authority and arbiters of all things religious. And Jesus sternly rebukes their self-righteousness, their false piety, their denial of the glory of God. His answer probably embarrassed them because in the next passage that we'll look at next, the, the scribe comes up and asks the question about the great commandment recognized that Jesus answered them well. He answered them so well, there is no response that the Sadducees have to Jesus' response to their question. They are silenced, and someone else has to come up and try to trick him into a different, with a different question. Now, it's very easy for us in this story. That, that's the story. That, that's what we we have recorded for us in Scripture that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, don't believe in just about anything, except for their own power and fame. They come to Jesus wanting to catch Him in, a, in, in some bizarre doctrinal kind of situation and prove that He doesn't know what He's talking about. He is able to answer their question, telling them they don't know the Scripture, they don't know God. And, and that's the story. But... And in seeing the story in that way, it's easy to recognize the Sadducees as the bad guys, right? They're clearly the ones who are coming against Jesus. Jesus is able to deal with their question and answer them. It's easy to see them as the bad guys. The problem is that when we see a story and we recognize someone else as the bad guy, we always want to identify ourselves with the good guy. And the problem in this story, the thing that we need to understand from this story, and really in any Bible story that involves Jesus, is whoever's coming against Jesus, we are not Jesus. We're always the bad guys. You and I, our sinful hearts, are fully capable of being Sadducees and Pharisees and everybody else. We're the bad guys. And what we need to recognize in this particular passage of Scripture is that the things that the Sadducees did in coming to Jesus with this question, we are fully capable, and not only are we fully capable of doing it, we regularly do these things 
in a variety of ways. And so for uh, just a couple of moments, I want us to look at three dangers that exist for us as we think about what it means to uh, not be the Sadducees, what it means to not behave in the way that they behaved as they brought Jesus this question. The first danger is that we let our own agenda dictate our beliefs. The Sadducees decided there is no resurrection, and therefore everything else had to fit into that category. So they, they, they determined their belief, and everything else had to fit inside the category of that belief. We let our own agenda, our own hearts, dictate what we believe, and then we expect everything else to fit into that. This happens all the time in our culture. And far too often it happens in the church. The best example is when something happens in the life of someone that we love, and then it changes how we want to feel or think about a particular issue. There are many examples of church families who have changed their opinions or beliefs about the sanctity of human life when their teenage daughter gets pregnant. Many Christians have changed their beliefs on marriage and sexuality after a family member comes out of the closet. Over and over again, circumstances change how we look at the world, and whether we realize it or not, our sinful heart has an agenda, and that agenda is always opposed to the things of God. Without an anchor of truth, which for us is the infallible, inerrant, Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God, we will be swept around believing whatever is convenient or feels good for the circumstance of the moment. We even have example after example uh, in regular, in real life, in real time of modern celebrity pastors who have taught one way for a, a long time and then changed their views based upon the prevailing winds of culture. Culture and agendas change, but you can always tell an untethered belief system because it will change along with the culture or the agenda. The seriousness of errant doctrine can be compared to a missile aimed a mere one degree off target. In the beginning, the difference seems very slight and negligible, Yet the results of the error increase dramatically throughout the flight until the missile totally misses its intended target. I shared that story in the first service. Ryan came up to me later and he said, I did the calculation just because I was curious. And so for a short-range missile that, that travels about 620 miles, just one degree off of its heading, it would miss the mark by 10 miles at the end. Which means that if you were trying to destroy Hiram with a missile, you would end up destroying Dallas instead. Or maybe Marietta. Like, it's one slight change at the very beginning can have disastrous results at the end. You completely miss the mark. And so it is with false doctrine. At first, it may seem to be a tolerable mistake, a little error, but not that serious. But as with all errors, the effects compound over time until they become so serious that they may not be correctable. And so recognizing that it's entirely possible for us to be Sadducees coming to Jesus, wanting to trap him into believing our way, we need to recognize we have the danger of letting our agenda dictate what it is 
that we believe. The second danger that we face is that we ignore Scripture. In the same way that the Sadducees did, they, they just ignored the passage of the Scripture that talked about the supernatural. There are examples in, in, in Genesis of, of supernatural of the Lord and, and angels coming with Him talking to Abraham. Like You have examples of the supernatural scattered throughout the Torah, and yet they denied the existence of the supernatural because they were ignoring Scripture. The particular danger is that we ignore that which makes us feel uncomfortable. If we've already set our agenda and set our belief structure, we want to ignore anything that tells us that we are wrong, that makes us feel uncomfortable. So for example, if I'm someone who enjoys sharing interesting stories that I've heard about other people, that's my sarcasm coming through, I might spend time ignoring Scripture's teaching against gossip because that makes me feel uncomfortable because I enjoy sharing interesting stories of what's going on in other people's lives. If I've let my agenda drive my beliefs, I will ignore anything that corrects or contradicts my beliefs. And when we do that kind of things, we need to recognize we're the Sadducees in this story. We're the ones who are, are trying to, to, to conform God into our belief structure, and we are ignoring anything that corrects or contradicts what we believe. The third danger is that we use Scripture to prove our beliefs. The third danger is that we come to Scripture looking for ways to prove that we're right, and we're justifying ourselves with our agenda by using Scripture. I recently heard it said that we live in a time where opinions are often poorly formed and yet firmly held. In other words, we tend to feel strongly about the fact that we are irrefutably right while having failed to do any kind of work to ensure that that's actually the case. This trend is present within our churches just as much as it is in the society at large. The only difference is that the way that we entrench ourselves in our views is by compiling large numbers of proof texts that seem to support our point. But the problem is that many times those proof texts are shallowly or poorly understood, and they don't actually advocate for what the person is citing them to argue. Sometimes they actually support a theological statement that's the exact opposite of the point we think we're making. So let me give you an example. Let's imagine for a second that I go back a little over a decade, and I agree with Rob Bell in his Uh, belief structure, he came to the decision that no one is ever going to go to hell, that that everyone's going to be saved. He wrote a book called Love Wins, and and everyone's going to be saved. Ultimately, he said, he said, God is love, and he's not going to, he has a loving God, he's not going to send anyone to hell. And so there there is no hell, we're all just going to be together in heaven. Let's say that, that I've decided I believe that. So I begin looking for scripture passages for a verse that could prove that I'm right. So I, I, you know, obviously you think of John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world, so love, that whosoever believeth in him... Oh, that's the problem. So it doesn't say everybody. It does say whosoever, but then there's that, that little word believeth after him. So maybe I can't use that one. So then I keep looking for another verse, and I get to 1 Corinthians 15.22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Hey, did you see it? In Adam we all died, but in Christ we're all made alive. And I can pull that little verse out of context and prove 
that no one's going to hell because God is love and He in Christ is making all of us alive. Taken out of context, I can make this verse say what I believe. And if I look at the next verse, though, the very next verse, verse 23, in context, Paul is using the word all to refer to those who belong to Christ. That's the phrase that he uses. That all is referencing those who belong to Christ. So he's not saying that everyone's going to be saved. He's saying all who belong to Christ will be made alive in Christ. But if I take it out of context and ignore the verses around it, I can make it say whatever I want. This is the danger that we use Scripture wrongly out of context to prove our belief. Or using this very passage today as an example, many people have used this verse to justify saying things like a family member who's passed away has gone to be an angel. My in-laws live, um, my, my father-in-law is a pastor of a church in Tennessee, and right across the street from their house is a, uh, an old cemetery. And one of, one of the graves, uh, they, they had a spelling error on it, and it says, gone to be an angle, which is not the same thing as an angel. Um, so I, we always kind of get a kick out of that. But, um, and my sister-in-law reminded me of that as I preached this this morning, that, <laughs> that we're not gone to be an angle or an angel. <laughs> Scripture doesn't offer either of those things. Instead, we go to be redeemed people who are around the throne praising God because He has redeemed us. Jesus is not saying in the context of this passage that we're going to be an angel. He says that we are going in this one instance, in the the issue of marriage, we will be like the angels. It's a metaphor that He is using. So we need to recognize in in this story, instead of just automatically identifying with Jesus, we need to see ourselves and the dangers that we face as potential Sadducees, as we understand that we have agendas, our sinful heart wants to find things that are opposed to God, and sometimes that can dictate our beliefs, causing us to ignore what Scripture teaches, and then even worse, use Scripture to try to justify our wrong beliefs. So if that's what the Sadducees are doing, and that's how we need to avoid, in terms of application, how we avoid what they were doing, how is it that we then follow Christ? Well, we need to walk in the truth. That is the, that, that's the, the thing that we need to do. And how do we do that? How do we walk in truth? How do we be people who follow the teachings of Christ in this? Well, the first thing is that we need to know and obey Scripture. Jesus told the Sadducees the reason they were wrong is they didn't know Scripture. So how, how do we avoid being wrong? Know and obey the entire counsel of God's Word. Paul writes to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How do we avoid falling into the temptation of having wrong beliefs and then proof texting? We allow Scripture to correct us. So we must know and obey Scripture in order to walk in the truth. We can easily even fall into the habit of reading about the Bible and failing to actually spend time in His Word. But doing so leaves us theologically imbalanced, especially if we commit the added error of avoiding hearing from those that we disagree about and really wrestling with the Word of God. We need to know and obey the Scriptures. Number two, how do we walk in truth? We need to know and trust the power of God. We know and trust. He has revealed Himself in Scripture. He has revealed His power in so many ways. We can walk book by book through Scripture and see God's uh, amazing supernatural power on display in a variety of ways. 
And in doing that, we can also see the great sinfulness of the heart of God's people. Uh, the example I always think of that is, as God led his people out of Egypt, he parted the Red Sea. They walked through on dry ground. They saw supernatural power on amazing display. And three days later, they were wishing they could go back to Egypt and grumbling because they were hungry. That's the status of our hearts. But we need to constantly remind ourselves that God is on the throne. He is all-powerful. We trust His power and we trust Him to work in our personal lives because there's nothing that you're facing that is outside of the control and power of our great God. We trust Him to work in our church family. We trust Him to work in our culture. We trust Him to work in politics. We trust Him to work in life and in death. He is the almighty creator and sustainer of life, sustainer of our universe. We need to know and trust the power of our great God. The third way that we walk in truth, is that we address false doctrines from Scripture alone. The Sadducees tried to trick Jesus with a clever question. There are plenty of people who have what they believe are clever arguments against the Bible and against faith in Christ. You can find them online. You can find them in any conversation that you have. And if you're faced with such a clever argument and you hope to make a meaningful reply, then hear the words of Peter as he writes to the early church in 1 Peter 3. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed, he says. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Notice he does not say, that we hope people are put to shame by our cunning arguments or our debate skills. He says that they are put to shame because we are walking with Christ day by day, walking in the truth, seeking to honor Christ in all that we do. That includes responding and answering with gentleness and respect. So following the example of Christ, we don't address all of the problems. When we're, we're, we're talking with someone, when they're, 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 they're teaching false false doctrine. Instead, we need to cut to the heart of the issue, which includes their motives and unstated agendas. Jesus, Jesus didn't engage in the conversation about the brothers and their one wife. He, he, he didn't say anything about it. He said, no, you're in error because you don't believe in the resurrection. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. And then he says that there will be no marriage in heaven. He just doesn't engage with their little little straw man argument. He just, he, he shares where they're wrong. He, he gets to the heart of the issue of their doctrine. We, we shouldn't try to embarrass the people we're talking with with superior logic. Instead, we need to address their heart issue with compassion. Our goal is not to win a contest or debate, but it's to, to win a person to faith in Christ. And then we need to stay with, with, with Scripture. Let Scripture be the one who, who we use to argue with. And listen, if you come to a point, somebody asks you a question, you don't know the answer to it, it is okay to say, I don't know, but I will find out. It is, it's great to say that. Don't try to make something up. You'll not do well. So if somebody asks you a question about the Bible that you don't know the answer to, I don't know, but I will find out. And then find someone to ask that question to. It's okay. We, we, we are in a growth season of our lives. 
We will be until Jesus comes back. And so there are things we don't know about Scripture, and that's okay. It's okay to answer that and say, but I will find out. So in walking in truth, we know and obey Scripture. We know and trust the power of God. We address the false doctrine from Scripture. But then ultimately, looking at the overarching kind of theme of this particular passage, as we hear what Jesus said and what they're talking about, what the question's about, as followers of Christ, all of this is kind of meaningless if there is no resurrection. Like, what are we even doing here if there is no resurrection? And so the, the last way that we walk in truth from this passage is that we look forward in hope to the resurrection. That we recognize that this is not what it's all about. That what I'm, I'm doing here, what we're doing here, what we're doing day by day and living our lives, this is not the end. This is not what it's all about. This is not the ultimate. You have not reached the pinnacle. It doesn't matter what age you are. You can live to 150 and you will not have reached the pinnacle of what it means to be created by our great God because until we are gathered around the throne of God, we don't really even fully know how great He is. This is not it. We should actually find great hope and joy in his answer to the Sadducees because he says there is a resurrection, there is an eternity, and we're going to spend it with him. There are angels. There is supernatural. This life is not all that there is. So with that in mind, I want to finish our time today just by looking at two passages of Scripture that deal with eternity. And I just want you to hear from the Word of God what he says about what we have to look forward to. The first is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Isn't that just comforting right there at the very beginning? We don't want you to be uninformed. We want you to understand what it is that you're dealing with, someone who has passed away. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so everything hinges on, the, on His resurrection, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Isn't that an encouraging statement? Isn't that, isn't that a comforting statement that, that death is not final in this life? That, that those who are in Christ, they have fallen asleep. But that, that indicates there's coming a day where they're going to wake up, where, where, where we are going to be reunited he goes on, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Paul says, this is not me talking. This is, this is the Lord speaking to us. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel. There's the supernatural. And with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise First, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Isn't that great news? He said, it doesn't matter what you're facing in this life. It doesn't matter what grief you're walking through for those who have gone on before us. You need to recognize some things. He says, they have fallen asleep, but Jesus is coming back and they're going to wake up. And when, when He does come back and when they do wake up, we're going to join them. And we're all going to be recreated and we're going to go be with Him. And He says, we will always be with the Lord. There will never be a time in eternity when we are not with the Lord. And He finishes, therefore, encourage one another with these words. He says, you need to tell each other. 
We need to tell each other that Jesus is coming back and we're going to go be with Him for all eternity. There is a resurrection. There is a heaven. He has created. He says He's gone to prepare a place for us. And then He's going to return and take us to be with Him for all eternity. Praise God, there is a resurrection. We have hope. We do not grieve as those who do not, who do not have hope. We grieve with hope because we can cry and miss someone, but we miss them like they've gone on a trip and we know one day we're all going to be reunited. And on that day, we're never going to be separated again. Amen. The second passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? He answers, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. I, it took me a long time in my Christian life to understand what he's saying there. But man, I love that analogy. That is a, an incredible metaphor. What he's saying is, you need to recognize that what God is preparing for us is unlike anything that, that, that we can even imagine. And in order for us to experience it, in order for us to be recreated into who He intends for us to be, we have to lay down this earthly shell that we might grow into the new creation. And so He says, we don't need to worry about how the dead are raised. God's got that under control. And we're laying down this seed, we're planting this seed here that we might be with Him for all eternity in our glorified bodies, the people that He has created us to be. He goes on, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Referencing back what we just talked about, those who are alive and who meet them in the air, we're not going to meet them in the air like we are now. We're going to take on whatever that, that new thing that He's created for us. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see it again? There is the promise throughout Scripture that the hope we have is not in this life. We, this life is just the side benefit of getting a preview of what knowing God is going to be like. But we are prepared for more. He has created us for more. This is not it. As good as it gets here sometimes, it's nothing compared to the greatness of our God. So let's not get so tied to this that we're not looking ahead to what He has created. And He finishes this passage with this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because our home is with Him. Because this is not what we were created for, then Paul says, not because we need to be steadfast here, not because Jesus commanded it, but because 
of what He is preparing for us, because of all the great things He is doing, because He is God and He is all-powerful, because of who He is, my beloved brothers, then be steadfast. Walk closely with Him. Be immovable. Stand firm in what you believe. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not giving up doing the things that we are called to do as followers of Christ. But it's not because we're doing it for here. It's because we know that our God is worth it. And what He is preparing for us is greater than we could ever imagine. And our hope is with Him. And we look forward to the day that He's coming back to claim us to be with Him. And we recognize that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. Everything that we do in the Christian life as we are proclaiming the good news of the gospel, our labor is not in vain because if someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of us sharing the good news with them, the Holy Spirit works in their life. Guess what? We get to spend eternity with that person. Our labor is not in vain. God is the one who is at work and He's working through us and the things that we're doing is not in vain because He's preparing something so much greater than we can ever even imagine. So brothers and sisters, walk in truth. Know and obey Scripture. Know and obey and trust the power of our great God. We need to address false doctrine when it seeks to to undermine the truths of Scripture. We need to address it with Scripture. But all of that we do living in the hope of the resurrection. Because Jesus is coming back. Praise God. Jesus is coming back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for the hope that we have. Lord God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that this is not all that there is. Thank you that seeking power and wealth, as the Sadducees did, is not the end goal of Christ's followers. Because you've promised that our treasures are in heaven. And that as children of the King, we are the ones who inherit the riches of the glory of God, not because of anything we've done, but because of Christ, who in obedience laid down His life for us. Paid the debt of our sin and gives us His righteousness. Lord God, thank You for redemption. Thank You that You are at work in our hearts. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who does not have the hope of the resurrection, does not have hope in Christ, that today would be the day that they would give their life to Him. Lord, I pray as we respond to Your Word today that You would just cause us to rejoice. Lord, there's so many things in life that can get us down. So many things in our culture and the world around us that are distressing. But Lord, we have hope. Keep our eyes on that. Lord, we thank you and praise you. We give you this time now as we respond to your word in Jesus' name. Amen.